This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning, Redeemer. I love you. Our scripture this morning is Psalm 126. We've been singing it and reading it. Would you rise and read it with me, please? Page 517 in the Pew Bibles, Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes in Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the negative. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Amen. Good morning. I'm really honored to be before you this morning, bringing God's word. And I'm really excited about what the Lord may speak to us through Psalm 126 this morning. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord God, right now, I feel the weight and the responsibility of preaching your magnificent, inerrant word. Lord, would I decrease and you increase. Lord, where I'm weak, thank you that you delight to show yourself strong. For our congregation, our people this morning, I pray that your spirit would be deeply present in this room. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. We need you. Lord, do the work that only you can do. Where we need encouragement, encourage us. Where we need comfort, comfort us. Where we need confrontation and conviction, confront and convict us. Lord, we desire to be moldable clay in your hands. Do work among your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin our time this morning with what is a simple and maybe seeming rhetorical question. And that question is, is there real hope in a world full of suffering and sorrow? If you've never asked this question you probably either aren't living in reality or you haven't lived long enough. We experience the effects of sin, our own and others. We experience trials, 
sorrow, grief, disappointment, depression, injustice, anxiety, broken relationships, and death. And for our purposes this morning, I'm going to sum up all of these human experiences in a single phrase, suffering and sorrow. And at some point, if it hasn't already, that question, is there real hope in a world full of suffering and sorrow, will stop being rhetorical. And at some point, you will experience real, deep, long-lasting suffering and sorrow. Which sort of begs a question, why does suffering exist in the world? There's lots of philosophers that present many different answers to that question, but I think the Bible's answer is the best. Suffering exists because of the choices of our first parents. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit. They betray, they distrust, and they disobey God by trying to be God, by trying to be like God. And it leads to both the fall of man, the creatures created in God's image, and the fall of creation itself. We see with the fall of man, depravity now in the world. The world is full of sin and the effects of sin. We suffer sorrow because we sin against ourselves and each other. We see injustices and abuses and crimes of humans against one another. And not only that, but creation has fallen. The brokenness of creation. We suffer and sorrow in so many ways, simply because the world is not as it should be. Natural disasters, disease, sickness, death. Everyone in this room has suffered and sorrowed. All of us. We all have that in common. Now, this isn't a pleasant or fun exercise, but would you take a moment, pray, search your heart, and call to mind A, it it doesn't have to be the, but a significant way that you're suffering now, today, in this room. That experience may have happened two days ago. It may have happened 20 years ago. As you do this, be aware of a couple things. One, be aware of minimizing suffering. A lot of us like to play the comparison game. Well, Johnny on my right, Susie on my left, they've gone through something way harder than I've ever gone through. And we try to minimize, push away against our suffering. On the other end of the spectrum, beware of maximizing suffering, wallowing in self-pity, playing the victim. So take a moment. Identify a place in your soul and your heart where you experience suffering and sorrow. And the question is again, is there real hope in a world full of suffering and sorrow. And for the people of God, Psalm 126 answers with a sure and resounding yes. That's why I love the psalm. I got to to pick what psalm I preached, and Psalm 126 is probably one of my favorite psalms. Um, I love this psalm because not only does it have amazing poetic devices. The structure itself has beautiful, repetitive illusions. I mean, it's structured in a gorgeous, poetic way. But more than that, 
This psalm holds suffering and sorrow together with real hope. It meets real pilgrims with real suffering, with real hope. And for me, in the aftermath of my daughter's death in 2019, this is the type of psalm that kept the bottom from falling out, that holds you, that you can hold on to, because it offers real hope. So I want to look at the psalm this morning in sort of three movements or, or three lenses. And this is nice and catchy. Uh, past, present, future. <laughs> Verses one through three, the past, remembering God's joyful deliverance. Verse four, the present, our continued need for God's rescue and restoration. And verse five and six, the future, the hope-filled promise. And then we'll close with three encouragements from this beautiful psalm. So open your Bibles if you've closed them to Psalm 126. And let's look at the past, remembering God's joyful deliverance. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. If you haven't been here, we are in the midst of a mini-series on the Songs of Ascent. That's Psalms 120 through 134. And many scholars believe these psalms or these songs would be sung by the Jewish pilgrims three times a year to annual feasts in Jerusalem, in Zion, where God's presence dwelt most potently and gloriously. And it's a communal psalm. It's near the very center and heart of these songs of ascent. And as the pilgrims journey ever closer to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem and Zion, they collectively, as a community, call to mind, they remember God's work of deliverance from their suffering and sorrow and God's restoration of their joy. Well, what, what suffering did God deliver them from? How were they restored? As God's people, these pilgrims could have called upon any number of biblical stories, but I think at least two would have been prominent in their minds. The first would be the Exodus. The Israelites suffered for 400 years of slavery and servitude at the hands of the Egyptians. Now imagine generation after generation of living in slavery, slogging year after year under the lash. And with really no warning, out of nowhere, God suddenly delivers the Israelites through Moses and Aaron, yes, but really through his own massive display of power in the plagues against Egypt. Then think of, I think these pilgrims would think of the Babylonian exile. In 2 Kings and in Lamentations, we see a description of Jerusalem under siege. The people are suffering starvation to the point of cannibalism until the Babylonians ultimately conquer the city, resulting in mass murder, rape, and for those left captivity in Babylon. 
And not only that, but the glorious temple of God where his very presence dwelt was utterly destroyed. And these exiles, after 70 years of of Babylonian captivity, again, without real warning, God stirs up Cyrus, the king, and he makes a proclamation allowing the captive Jews to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And not only that, to be given gold and silver to assist in completing the project. Look at verse 1. We were like those who dream. The work of the Lord on behalf of his people is so awe-inspiring, so surprising, and really shocking, and so joyful, great, and gracious that it must be a dream. It's too good to be true. Look at verse 2. In response to God's past work of deliverance, the people laughed out loud and shouted with joy. I thought of the song of Moses in Exodus Exodus 15. The people of God are trapped against the Red Sea with the Egyptian army hot on their heels. God parts the sea. The Israelites cross over. The Egyptians pursue. And God closes the sea on them. Look how the people respond in Exodus 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And look at the end of verse 2, end of verse 3. Even the Gentile heathen nations looked at God's deliverance of his people with awe. The Lord has done great things for them. And I love the pilgrim's response here. Indeed, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Second movement, second lens, the present. Look at verse four. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Now, this is a significant turn in the psalm. The eyes of the pilgrim turn from looking to the past and remembering and recounting the Lord's deliverance to looking at the present and asking for God's rescue and restoration now. The traveling pilgrims call out to God in hope, asking him to again deliver them from suffering and restore them with surprising power. Lord, do it again. Lord, we have hope because you've done it before. We want to be dreamers again. Like streams in the Negev. Negev is a desert-like area south of Jerusalem, and it's sort of carved with deep ravines, and it rarely rains. But typically when it does, they're like these flash flood monsoon rains. And the scripture is saying, we want to see God's monsoon rains suddenly fill the cracked dry earth with streams of joy, and the desert blooms for a brief time. The psalmist admits that though God has worked powerfully and surprisingly in the past, his people still need further rescue and restoration. But from what? Hasn't God already delivered them? The psalmist understands what every Christian should in this room understand. That though God has inaugurated his kingdom, though he has 
rescued and restored us through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we still live in a broken and fallen world full of suffering and sorrow. The kingdom of God's Son has not yet been fully consummated. Jesus has yet to come back a second time and set all things to rights. As pastors and theologians like to say, in our present time, the kingdom of God is now and not yet, or already and not yet. And just like the pilgrims in Psalm 126, we long for, we hope for laughter and joy like God has given us in the past. And even more, we long for, we hope for the ultimate laughter and joy that will come when God, through his Son, finally and fully makes all things new. God, we long for you to rescue and restore us now in the present. We long for our suffering and sorrow to end. And this psalm assumes we still need hope now because God is not finished working. And if your response is anything like mine, I ask, God, how will you do it? When will you do it? What are we supposed to do in the meantime? Is there real hope in a world of suffering and sorrow? And God's answer to our question is a gut-wrenching, heartbreaking, gritty, and yet stunningly beautiful promise filled with surprising hope. Let's look at the third movement, the third lens, and this is where I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning. The future, the hope-filled promise. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This hope-filled promise is poetically captured in this creational metaphor. And by the way, I believe the Lord has given us a real gift here. He's speaking truth to us in the form of poetry, in the form of song. And poems and songs, they speak to us on a heart and soul level that goes way beyond just informational head knowledge. So let's look at this together. I think there are three key pictures in this metaphor for us to look at. And they contain a reality, an invitation, and a promise. The reality of tears, the invitation to sow, and a promise of harvesting. Let's start with the, re- the reality, the reality of tears. Those who sow in tears, he who goes out weeping. Look at the language of these verses. The psalmist assumes tears and weeping. In gut-wrenching realism, we are reminded that we will always experience some form of suffering and sorrow as we live in the already and not yet. Hey, recall the place just a few moments ago I asked you to think of a significant place of sorrowing and suffering. What if you call out to God for rescue and restoration and his answer is, you will weep, you will have tears. At first glance, the psalm provides a strange and 
potentially disheartening response to the pleas for the Lord to rescue and restore again. Lord, do it again. Please do it now. We need hope. And the response is, you will have tears. You will weep. Psalm 126 doesn't pull any punches. It doesn't downplay suffering and sorrow. It doesn't hide it. It frankly admits it and assumes it. Our tears and our weeping are evidence of our suffering and sorrows. And there's lots of sources of tears and weeping, of suffering. If you zoom way out, right, we live in a world, in a culture that has incredible injustice in it, a culture culture rife with depression, anxiety, violence, rage. We sense it. It's in the air around us. It's the water we swim in. If you zoom in a little bit, in communities, including the church, we see fallen leaders, church splits, disagreements and disunity, broken relationships, friends that have walked away from the faith, disappointment, unmet expectations. Zoom in a little further, and we have suffering in families, divorce, more broken relationships, disagreement over politics, disappointment, family members that despise the Lord and are wayward, estranged family members, prodigal children, disease, cancer, sickness, death of grandparents, death of parents, death of children. If you zoom all the way in, we suffer individually. Our own sin, addictions, poor decisions, others sinning against us, and often just walking through life in a fallen and broken world where so many things are not the way they should be. Disease, distance, sickness, death. The question for us, the question for you, will you accept this reality? Will you accept the fact that we will have tears and weeping, that we will suffer and sorrow? Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Jesus also said, no servant is greater than his master, meaning Jesus suffered, we will suffer. And if we accept this fact that we will experience suffering and sorrow, how do we respond? The second picture in this psalm is the invitation to sow. Those who sow in tears, bearing the seed for sowing. Psalm 126 invites us to respond to the tears and the weeping, the suffering and sorrow in a very particular way, the way of sowing. Notice that the promise in Psalm 126 is conditional. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. God invites us and calls us by his grace, through his spirit, to humbly and obediently sow our tears in him so that he can provide a joyful harvest 
for us to reap. Now take a second and think about the farmer in this metaphor. The farmer's rising before sunrise, preparing the seed. And there's a ton of reasons this farmer shouldn't get up out of bed. But the picture here is the farmer getting up, bearing the seed into the field, and as he weeps, scattering the seeds. Hey, sowing is mundane. It's simple. It's faithful. It's difficult work. It takes endurance. Sowing isn't really that sexy, flashy. It's not always exciting. But think about this. Sowing is essential and fundamental. The seed is precious, but the farmer must faithfully sow it. Because here's a guarantee for you. Without sowing, there's absolutely no possibility of a harvest. But we don't like to sow. (laughs) We don't like it at all. And even more frightening, there are ways that we, even as the people of God, can waste our suffering and our sorrow. If we're honest, many of us spend the vast majority of our waking time devising strategies for the avoidance of mere discomfort and inconvenience. How much more do we avoid sowing and suffering and sorrow? Now, I want to be clear. Christians are not masochists. We don't go out of our way to look for suffering and sorrow. But the tears and the weeping will inevitably come. And I think there's at least three ways that we try to avoid suffering and sorrow and the call to sow. And the sad part is they rob us of our hope. These three ways originate in the world and the culture around us, but I think they've found their way into the church. Now, I'm going to kind of use caricatures of these uh, to make the point, but I think all of us in different moments and different seasons allow these to seep into our lives. The first one is what I call the saccharine response, the sweet, kind of shallow response. This response refuses to truly accept and acknowledge tears and weeping. And when the reality of suffering and sorrow can no longer be ignored, the response is shallow sentimentality. In our broader culture, this looks like accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, latch on to the affirmative, self-help, focus on positive thinking and silver linings. In the church, this is often the person that slaps a sentimental Bible verse on weeping and tears, as if suffering and sorrow shouldn't be experienced by followers of Jesus. And sadly, by ignoring and minimizing tears and weeping, this response also hollows out and shallows the hope God promises us. On the other end of the spectrum, we have two cousins the nihilist response, and the cynical response. The nihilist response. Nihilism centers human suffering. It admits suffering, but it centers it as the only reality of human experience. It maximizes suffering. But there's no God. There's no transcendent transcendent meaning that can be found in our tears and weeping. Therefore, we humans are on our own in this universe to try to create our own hope out of suffering. 
And as strange as this may sound, this nihilistic view has led to all kinds of theories and mentalities, the basic logic of which says, I suffer and I'm a victim. And since there's no real hope, I will create my own, my own meaning, my own hope, by wielding my suffering and my victimhood as a weapon. This view of suffering without real hope often starts with intense self-pity and moves to venerating victimhood in order to achieve self-power or self-actualization. And in the church, this often looks like someone who wallows in their suffering with intense self-pity, looking to blame others in order to get something from them. And we all do this at times. But the sad part is we can't see beyond our own suffering to the hope-filled promise of a joyful harvest. The cousin of nihilism, cynicism, also admits to suffering, but completely does not, denies the existence of any real hope. This is the person who says, all hope is just unrealized failure. And in the church, I believe this is the most insidious of the responses. Because, right, no good Christian admits to this mentality that there's no hope. But if we're honest, we've all had moments and maybe even seasons in our lives where we may pay lip service to a hope in God, but we operate as if cynicism were true. Yes, tears and weeping exist. Yes, we suffer in sorrow, but hope isn't really real. I can't really build my life on the promises and hope of God. Psalm 126 invites us to hold both tears and weeping together with faithful hope. The picture used in the psalm is literally watering the seed you are sowing with your own tears. Sowing with tears and weeping looks like serving those who spitefully use you. Patience for those who misunderstand you, loving those who disappoint you, praying for a prodigal child as they seem to self-destruct more and more each day, praying for a family member who has relapsed yet again in their addiction, repenting to God and to your spouse yet again for your impatient anger, sitting in a hospital room with a loved one as they endure painful and torturous treatments, walking with an apostate family member with kindness yet firm conviction, waiting with prayer and hope for broken relationship to mend, enduring with prayer and hope, persecution for your faith, grieving with prayer and hope, a miscarriage, mourning infertility with prayer and hope, waiting with prayer and hope for reunification with a child who precedes you in death. Day after day, month after month, year after year. First Peter 4 sums up sowing well. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Galatians 6, Paul tells us, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. There are seasons in our lives when suffering and sorrow are more acute than others. But I believe this psalm invites us to see the gut-wrenching and heartbreaking reality that sowing and suffering 
and sorrow, it's not just a single event or even just a single season in our life that we simply try to get through in order to get back to normal life. For the people of God, sowing in tears is a way of life. In fact, for most of you in this room, at some point, God will ask you to carry some suffering or sorrow for the rest of your life. And it will require a lifetime of sowing in tears, a lifetime of going out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing. We need hope. We need real hope. We can't live without hope. Can't really live without hope. It's no accident that in Dante's Inferno, the inscription on the gates of hell is abandon all hope, ye who enter here. To live without hope is to live in a kind of hell. And hope is given to us in this third picture in Psalm 126 the promise of joyful harvesting. But I want to ask, what is real hope? I've been saying real hope a lot. What does it mean? What is biblical hope? The word hope, like the word love, often eludes us because it is thrown around in our world loosely. It's co-opted, often nefariously, for varied political, societal, and cultural purposes. But biblical hope is much more than a wish or a desire for something in the, in the future to happen. I like the way uh, Tim Keller puts it. Biblical hope is life-changing certainty about the future. In other words, the Bible goes way beyond mere wishful thinking. It's joyful anticipation that not only expects, but is confident that something good will happen. And now, if you're like me, who at times can struggle with cynicism, you may be wondering, well, how can we have such a confidence, such sureness? The confident hope is rooted and anchored in the character of God himself. Because of the unchangeable attributes of God's character, his goodness, his faithfulness, his power, to name just a few, we know he will accomplish all that he says, and he keeps all his promises. And in this God-breathed psalm, the Lord places before us that gut-wrenching, yet stunningly beautiful promise. And it's a promise that we can put all of our hope in. Look at verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. In this life, I believe the Lord in his incredible grace and mercy allows us to see what I call mini harvests, harvests of joy out of our sowing and tears in this life. We will see mending of relationships. We will see healing of disease and sickness. We will see overcoming of addiction. We'll see the Lord's salvation of loved ones. And we'll have many moments and even seasons of joy. Jesus says in Luke 6, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And not only that, 
but we will have joy in the sowing together with the tears and the weeping. Tears and weeping and joy aren't mutually exclusive. They can actually be held together. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul, describing his, his ministry, tells the Corinthians that one of these characteristics is always sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. God actually grants us the mercy to have joy while we sow in tears and weeping. Look at verse 6. We shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing our sheaves with us. God promises that we will reap an ultimate harvest through the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus. For those seeds faithfully sown in tears and weeping over a lifetime, God will ultimately restore and make all things new. He will reunite us with loved ones who have gone before us in the Lord, and he will even redeem and restore creation itself. Our pilgrimage will end. We'll come home, and we'll bring our joyful harvest with us. Let me read Revelation 21 over you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So indeed, our suffering and sorrow has an expiration date. This temporal promise has like a sequence to it, right? Sorrow and suffering, and then a joyful harvest. Psalm 30 says, our weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. But not only that, and this is the crazy part of Psalm 120, 126, the crazy truth in this psalm that in some amazing way that only God himself understands, he turns our very suffering and sorrow and transforms them into joy. The metaphor is clear about this, which in turn transforms us. For the people of God, suffering and sorrow are also a means of our transformation. The seeds of our suffering and sorrow, watered with our own tears, literally turn into a harvest of joy that transform us. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 5. We rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I want to close with three encouragements. 
The first is a, an encouragement meant to us as the people of God, God's church here at Redeemer Fellowship, our spiritual family. And I think that encouragement is keep sowing. The people of God live by memory and by hope. We've walked through very difficult times in recent years as a church family. We've wept. Man, we've wept. And by God's grace, we've sought to sow faithfully together in that weeping. Not perfectly, but I believe we've seen the beginnings of a mini harvest. In many ways, God has granted us a harvest of joy that we definitely hoped for, but he's done it in a way, of course, that we didn't deserve and we didn't expect. Redeemer family, keep sowing. Together, as a spiritual family, remember the Lord's surprising work. And we can also say with the pilgrims in this psalm, Lord, do it again. Continue to rescue and restore us. And if we're following this psalm, our task, our call as a spiritual family is by God's grace, empowered by his spirit, to keep sowing in tears and in weeping. There are more difficult times ahead, but we have real hope. And God will grant us joy in the sowing and an ultimate harvest of joy. Second encouragement is a little more personal. I believe the Lord would have his people know, would have you know, that the suffering and sorrows that you faithfully sow are not sown in vain. As a child of King Jesus, your tears are not lost. Listen to David speak of our Lord in Psalm 56. Lord, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Your suffering and your sorrows, sown faithfully, will be kept in God's book. And somehow, some way, someday, they will turn to a harvest of joy. And you'll be transformed in the process. You have real hope. Third and finally, as a child of God, you don't suffer and sorrow alone. Yes, we have a community, a church family, a spiritual family that bears with one another in our suffering and sorrow. But more importantly, the Lord himself is near to you in your suffering and your sorrow. In your tears and your weeping, he heals and he saves. Psalm 147, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Jesus himself confirms this in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And moreover, Hebrews 4 tells us we have a great high priest who is acquainted with our weakness and our suffering. In fact, Jesus is called the suffering servant. He is the very locus of the hope described in Psalm 126. He is the one who sowed in tears and weeping even unto his own death. Yet what a joyful harvest as he was raised to life again on the third day. 
Jesus not only embodies this psalm, his death and resurrection is the very ground upon which the hope of Psalm 126 stands. And that's why every week at Redeemer, we come to the Lord's table to celebrate communion together. We remember as God's family the surprising, beautiful work God has done for us. We ask him to keep doing it, restore us again. And we look toward the hope-filled future of a joyful harvest. The way we take communion at Redeemer is taking a piece of the bread, dipping it in the stoneware, or excuse me, in the, in the glassware. The glassware is wine, the stoneware is juice. Stoneware is wine, glassware is juice. <laughs> no, I had that wrong. Uh, will you stand with, me? stand with me? There's one other way I would like us to respond this morning in addition to communion. Once again, recall the place of sorrow and suffering that I asked you to pray about at the beginning. And I want to seriously invite you, like seriously, ask for prayer. We have prayer ministers all over this room, or find a brother and sister to pray for you, to pray Psalm 126 over you. I think there are people in this room who've been sowing in suffering and sorrow for a really long time. And you need encouragement. You need comfort. Come and ask for prayer. I think there's folks in this room whose own sin and decisions have contributed to your sorrow and suffering. And so you don't believe you should even sow or could even sow. Come and ask for prayer. Some of you in this room have been recently asked by God to carry a deep form of suffering and sorrow, and you are just beginning to find out what it looks like to sow. Come and ask for prayer. Ask for someone to pray Psalm 126 over you. Maybe some of you have not gotten the answer you wanted from the Lord. This psalm does not promise that we get to pick when the harvest is or what it looks like. But come and ask for prayer. Even if you've cried out to God, you've given up in sowing, ask for prayer to start sowing again by God's grace. Let me pray for us, and we'll take communion together. Father, thank you for real hope. That's not a mere wishful thought. It's grounded in your very character, and it stands on the work of your son, Jesus, who died and rose again. So as we come to this table May we look back in remembrance on your grand deliverance. May we ask for continued restoration. And may we look to a hope-filled future. In the name of Jesus, 
And by the way, the, way, the other thing about communion at Redeemers, we ask that Christians come. If you're not a believer, believer, you haven't put all of your hope in Jesus, we just ask you to stay in your seat and maybe pray to God. What would it look like to have this kind of Psalm 126 hope? But for Christians in the room, we ask you to come celebrate and come when you're ready. Amen.